Welcome to the fourth installment of The Plot Against America, our examination of the HBO series The Plot Against America, based on the Philip Roth novel of the same name. We're your hosts, Rob Nyer and Jim Baker, and this time around we'll be taking talking about episode three of the series, which originally aired on March 30th, 2020. Here's Rob Nyer. And that's Jim Baker. Jim, that was so professional. Thank you for, for, for writing it and for speaking it. I went to school. I went to the Sorbonne for <laughs> announcing <laughs> and you're also a seasoned professional. I've heard your uh, I've heard your early radio work. Oh yes, radio. That was the ticket to the future. <laughs> Glad I got on that in the '80s. Yes. Well, before we talk about the show <clears throat> and about Philip Roth and Woody Allen and whatever else comes up, we have about an hour. We can talk about really whatever we like. Um, uh, we're recording this on the 1st of April, and just a few hours ago, we got the news that one of our, I think I think I speak for the both of us, one of our all-time favorite singer-songwriters passed away from this damn virus. Uh, and uh, I thought if, if, if we weren't doing a podcast, we would talk about it, so let's talk about it now. It just felt personal for the right. first time. Yes. Uh, you know, we've, I've been very fortunate that no one, you know, even second, anyone know, that I know or knows of has it, but this felt personal for the first time. Right. I think if, for example, if Tom Hanks had died, a lot of people would have felt it personally. I, I guess I would have because I, I, he's done some roles that really got inside me uh but he's fine from what i've heard um and i know there are famous people in other countries who have gotten sick and died but i literally never heard of any of them so this is the first one and there will be others we know there will be others but he's really the first one adam schlesinger uh, is who we're talking about by the way um and you know it's funny i've been a big fan of fountains of wayne since their first record, which I believe was 1996. They've only got four or five albums. Um, I think you were a fan from the beginning. We probably started talking about Fountains of Wayne then because we both love Power Pop so much and the guy could, he and his partner. Right. Uh, you, you're the one who turned me on to them. Oh, that's good to know. So, yes. And I, I think Welcome Interstate Managers is probably my favorite album of the 21st century. I would probably agree with you just because... There's not a single song on it that isn't great. How many albums are like that? <laughs> right. Um, and, I wanted to ask you. Go and ahead. They're diverse. They're diverse too. Yes, that's exactly right. like I was. I, I wanted. So I wanted to ask you what your favorite Fountains of Wayne song is. Oh boy, that's tough. Or 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 I could just say, or. Schlesinger song because obviously that thing you do is not Fountains of Wayne, but he it's one of his greatest songs is is the title song. It's a masterpiece. I always remember him sitting there at the Academy Awards because he was nominated, and he didn't get to perform it. And they did some sort of big production uh, number. Production number, and it was it was really lame. And he. <laughs> You could see him in the audience just like shrinking into his chair like this is awful <laughs> um it didn't win 
but I, my contention at the time was it should have won because if without that song, you don't have a movie. Exactly. And you can't say that about any other, how many songs can you say that about in the history of, of, of cinema? Like without right. that song, they don't have yep. a movie. The way we were maybe. Right. Or, or uh, <laughs> what was that? What was that one song? The morning after. Yes. <laughs> there has to be a morning after. Uh, so I, I thought it should have won on that. Plus, plus I love the song. It's it's yeah. a truly fantastic song. And, uh, I know. wore out the CD soundtrack. <clears throat> I mean, it's it's. I didn't literally wear it out because you can't wear a CD out. But it's 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 probably one of my top ten listened to records. I'm not sure if I put it in my top ten favorites. Just like I don't love the movie, but I've seen it fifteen times. It's the weirdest thing. Oh, I There's love the movie. It's a perfect. It's a perfect movie. And and by perfect I mean it achieves what it sets out to do perfectly. And very few movies do that. It's wildly entertaining and it's you know, kinda accurate to the time. Have you ever seen the 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 longer version on that's thirty nine extra minutes? Oh my goodness, no. Yeah, neither have I. What, what are they? Do they stay together in the seventies and all get hooked on smack or something? Or what? What is it about? It's got a different ending for one thing, oh. which struck me as odd. I, I read a list of the what they added or some of what they added, and none of it sounded all that appealing to me. But I guess people like it. It gets more into the characters. You learn more about all the characters, and there's more development, all that sort of thing. But I think the movie, it's to me that sort of movie should be ninety or hundred minutes. It's fluff. Why should it be two hours and 40 minutes? It doesn't make any sense to me. So anyway, what's your favorite? You didn't, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't answer the question. What's your favorite song? Boy, that's, that's putting me on the spot. I probably that thing you do. It's hard not to love that thing you do. And I do love it. And I also love Stacy's mom, even though obviously it's silly and ridiculous and appeals to the absolute lowest common denominator. It's still a great song. Every single note of it is great. And if you were ever a teenage, heterosexual teenage boy, you can utterly relate to it, right? Um, and I also love, just, just I think because of how he died, how young he was, all kinds of time has been getting a lot of, a lot of love on social media. Um, and it's a great song. I couldn't believe when I heard it. Wait a second. You wrote a song about a quarterback? Are you kidding me? <laughs> but it's perfect. And then I was so gratified. Because I always, it's funny, I always kind of felt sorry for him because I always thought that his talents were not rewarded. But he's been nominated for multiple, and won multiple Emmy Awards, Tony Awards, all sorts of stuff. And his, the NFL paid who knows how many gazillion dollars to use that song in a campaign. So I'm fairly sure that he wound up doing pretty well. Um, so I don't feel sorry. Well, now I feel sorry for him because he just died. But I wasn't feeling sorry for him before. I love that song too. But the one I always come back to, the one that really gets me, because probably because there's a there's a key change in the middle, and it's so elegiac, is um, uh, Fire Island. You know Fire Island? Sure. Oh my gosh, that just I could listen. I used to listen to that over and over again. When I got that record, it was one of those records. Inter- one of those records, and you probably did the same thing when you were young. I don't anymore, uh, but I did this when I was young quite a bit. I get a new record, and I hit on one song, 
played over and over again, like dozens of times. And then there'd be another song on the same record. You ever do that? Dozens of times? Well, that oh, was sure. the first well, one on that record. Well, when that, when that CD came out, I just got in a car with a CD player for the first time. So it, got, it never left the car. It was constantly being played. And there, you mentioned the genre thing. There's a great country song on that record. There's a great uh, psychedelic pop. Super Collider. Oh, my God, that song's so good. So here's what I do with Super Collider. I open YouTube, two different YouTubes on the computer, and I start one version of Super Collider, and then I start the other one like half a second behind it. Uh-huh. And I play them simultaneously, and it gets this great delay going. Nice. It's really trippy, man. <laughs> You really should try drugs, Jim. Nah, this is cheaper, <laughs> man. Uh, so I'm glad we're laughing, but uh, it really is. I just learned today that he won an Emmy for doing a bunch of songs for the show My Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. So, And I, I went to his Wikipedia page, and there's this whole entire world of other material that he did outside of Fountains of Wayne. And so I had this whole, all these other things to, 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 to check out. And I would well, imagine he, he did. He was Ivy, right? Was that's it? right. I didn't yeah. know that either. Yeah. I like Ivy. I, I've never heard of Ivy until tonight. Um, <laughs> so yeah, there's, a, there are a million things to listen to. I, I, I'm guessing some of our listeners, <clears throat> all of our, our many listeners that at least some percentage have never listened to anything besides Stacy's mom. And uh, it's time to listen to something else because there were he's dozens of brilliant songs um and i'll be listening to many of them over the next few days uh before we leave the subject i want to just ask you because you've made uh, probably nobody listening knows this but jim once made a number of amazing songs himself he's quite the musician quite the composer and uh, like Adam Schlesinger, Jim was very eclectic and moved around in all sorts of genres. So I really, there's really nobody better to talk to about him than you. And sort of what's your overall take on him? And, and uh, I don't know, I, I already asked you what your favorite song was, but uh, what was the most impressive thing for you? A great lyricist who gets to everyday life in songs much better than most. I mean, I, I think they compared him to Ray Davis a lot, Ray Davis, the kinks, because, mm -hmm. you know, he talks about the everyday commuting. I mean, how many bands write about commuting? <laughs> <laughs> right. He loves to tell stories and he told, yeah. tell all sorts of stories. Right. And one of the things that always drew me to country music was that it, it's, it still respects a story in a way that, that pop and rock don't quite as much, but he, he put, he put story songs into into power pop, and that always impressed me. And hooks, you know, I my, my motto has always been: if you haven't written a melody, you haven't written a song. Mm -hmm. And uh, he he typifies that. He exemplifies that. Yep, yep. Great, incredible body of work. So we uh, we've mentioned. Um, I think we talked about radio days in our first episode, maybe our second, uh, because there's a clear connection. Uh, young boy, 
in Newark during World War II, young boy in, in I don't remember where, where, where the Brooklyn. character in, in Brooklyn, that's right, um, in radio days. Um, I won't belabor that because the comparison is obvious and we already talked about it some, but um, I think one of us actually sort of speculated, did those two know each other? Did they ever talk? What, what would they have talked? You know what I mean? Do you remember that, that discussion we had? Yes. Well, I'm, I just started reading Woody Allen's new book, which I will just say it's, it's quite good. It falls well short of pure of art. Uh, it's not that sort of book. I don't think he wanted to write that sort of book. It's just a really interesting, um, obviously amusing, often often amusing uh, memoir, but I'm really enjoying it. I, it's hard to put it down. I, I basically I read every night until I can't keep my eyes open anymore. But I found this passage. He's writing about uh, briefly about the movie um, Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Sex. Um, and he says, uh, we had a sequence where a mad scientist creates a giant breast that breaks loose and terrorizes the countryside. By sheer coincidence, just when the movie opened, Philip Roth came out with his book, The Breast, also about a giant breast. Roth was a much deeper, more serious man than me, in addition to being very funny. Sometimes we'd show up together in some article on Judaism or Jewish humor, but he approached issues from a thoughtful, engaging point of view. I was only interested as far as they gave me good comedy material. He was a thinker, a genuine intellectual. I was a comic-turned-movie maker, and we worked in different mediums. There's a big gap between dying in print and dying on stage. Death in print is a private matter. Death in front of an audience is embarrassing, and the comic experiences the same unpleasantness one might feel at one's crucifixion. And speaking of death, allow me a graceful segue to my next film, Sleeper. So that's the, the extent of the, the... I think actually there's a Roth reference later in the book, but I haven't gotten to that. But anyway, I thought you would be interested in that. He nails it. Uh, yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, Woody, I, want, I wanted to mention that <clears throat> Woody Allen's book contains a great number of offhanded references to baseball. I never quite realized what a big baseball fan he was because there's really not that many references um, in his movies well, to baseball, except for that amazing sequence in... Oh, no, two amazing sequences, right? The Radio Day sequence... <laughs> which is just phenomenal and based right. on something that really happened in the media back then. And then, of course, the scene where he he he, he becomes a uh, uh, he impersonates a New York Yankee in Zelig. Those are two of my favorite sequences in, in, in baseball sequences in film history. Right. And there's a joke in uh, Curse of the Jade Scorpion that he makes about the Giants, I think, which you know, you have to be a baseball historian to get the joke. Huh. But trust me, it's funny. <laughs> uh, but it, I, I just, the connections between between the Woody Allen, <clears throat> the, the movie, and and uh, the plot against America are, I think, really interesting. And maybe when they're all finished, we can go back and revisit. When, when the episodes are, we've seen all the episodes, you go back and revisit. They're, they're sort of competing visions of, of, of being a little Jewish boy in, in World War II New York. Absolutely. So should we move on to the episode? Was there anything else that I, I... Have I forgotten anything you don't know about? No. All right. Let's go. Let's go. Uh, episode three, which we've decided is is titled Chapter Three. Is that right? Episode three. Part three. 
Part three. Part three. Uh, we looked <clears throat> for titles, and all we found was part three. <clears throat> so, uh, before I forget, I wanted to mention that we open with stamps. I love the stamps. Keep keep the stamps coming, David Simon. Fantastic. But uh, what are your overall impressions of the episode? And then we'll get into the specifics. It, it starts with a cross cutting, which uh, which works really well. Um, Evelyn's at the synagogue watching the rabbi. Well, it starts preach. with the dream. Well, well, right? I mean, it, after the after the dream. After the dream with the stamps, right. yeah. Uh, and we see Alvin training in Britain with the Canadian Army, and we see the home life of the Levins, and we go back and forth like that for a while. And then off we go. They the one of the sep, uh, things that separates it from the book is they follow Alvin into the army. In right. the book, he just disappears; he goes away, right, and uh, to reappear later. With, With as I remember, zero details of what what happened when he was over there. Right, the only right. thing right. that he has lost part of his leg. Right. So they they build up. They do the the training montage. They do. All the things you see in a traditional war movie that lead you to believe you're going to see, <laughs> you know, the the thing from the Dirty Dozen where they actually do the mission. And then they just bypass that and he's in a hospital with the leg gone. You know what I loved about that? I was actually afraid they were going to do the, do the, 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 the combat sequences, which would have been thrilling, except... You've heard that old saw. I don't remember who said it. Somebody said a long time ago, you cannot make a, a war movie without glorifying war. It doesn't matter what it is. And it's true. I, I've heard stories about, about Marines in boot camp cheering when they watch um, um, the uh, <coughs> Kubrick film. Right. I, I, I have a book somewhere. It's a production book for the A Bridge Too Far and uh, Richard Attenborough, all through it, he says, "This, this is, you know, this is my anti-war statement." <laughs> oh God, God! And I, I'm thinking, <laughs> okay, we all agree war is terrible. Yes. So, are you saying that they shouldn't have tried to liberate Belgium, uh, liberate Holland from the Nazis? Is that? But it's and it's not even <laughs> it's not even particularly real. It's be one thing if it were Private Ryan, which ultimately turns into a prototypical war movie. But at least you get a real sense for how horrible it all is in 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 a bridge too far you see very few civilians being killed you see almost no real gore people get shot there's blood heads flying off there's blood in the i mean no one was doing that there's at that point blood in the river no i know i'm just saying and, and there's blood it... in the you know when they set the hospital up and, and leave Olman's house yes and you know the, the creeping barrage when the 30 core starts rolling down the highway and they do that creeping barrage toward the Germans in the woods. That's pretty terrifying. For 1977, it's it's pretty gripping. Right, which just, um, just makes the point that they really weren't making, Hollywood wasn't making anti-war movies. They weren't even really trying to make anti-war movies in the 70s. Well, I shouldn't say that. Apocalypse no. Now was in the 70s. But that was an outlier. Right. right. Well, there, there were the movies that didn't show combat that were anti-war. <clears throat> right, exactly. Uh, deer hunter, etc. Um, well, I'm sorry, I sort of walk over what you were saying. So, 
so they skipped the combat sequence. Right, and, you, and you I, listened the, to, I listened to the podcast, and David yeah. Simon said, if we had $6 million more million, yeah. we would have done it. <laughs> <laughs> but he said, he said he was glad we didn't. And, and, I, and I wanted to mention that, uh, again, uh, everyone who cares about this stuff should listen to the official Plot Against America podcast because David Simon is just fantastic talking about these episodes. Uh, we're doing something completely different from what they're doing. But um, I, I think I think they're great. It's 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 really worth listening to. So we go from that montage from that back and forth, and you know I wasn't I got to say I wasn't completely sold on the training. We get this one tiny training sequence, basically, where they learn how to kill Germans, uh, and it's in a very pastoral place. I'm not sure about the timeline. When does this happen? The next summer? The summer of 1941? Because nobody's wearing coats. It looks quite balmy in, 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 in jolly old England. Well, the opening so, title is May, May 1941. Okay, I didn't see I missed. I missed the title. Okay, so that makes sense. It's still, so, so we're in the spring. <clears throat> well into spring. Got it. Right. The um, timeline, though, is, is getting pretty messy compared to the real timeline. Because uh, they show the Battle of Crete. And, uh, you know, Crete was the last two weeks of May in 41. Uh -huh. And they're showing Barbarossa, the invasion of the Soviet Union, is kind of happening simultaneously. Uh, unless they just had a backlog of newsreels. Well, that's, a, that's just, was that actually in the newsreel? That yes. Oh, I forgot. I didn't really even yes. really notice that. Okay, got it. Right. Uh, Which isn't until June 22nd, for those who are not up on their World War II. Right, but it, it makes you wonder... Could Barbarossa have gotten rolling earlier? Right. Because one of the reasons Barbarossa got delayed was that um, they had to subdue Yugoslavia. So maybe without as much British support, they could have they could have launched the invasion of the Soviet Union earlier. Yes. So anyway, I didn't quite buy the montage, but you know I get it. Uh, and then we go from there shortly into the the what is in my mind, the most unsettling sequence in, in the whole episode, which is in the Just Folks office, and you see those posters on the wall. Uh, and you and I both love propaganda posters. Um, they just, they're just so evocative, and <clears throat> we've seen so many of them over the years uh, from that period, but seeing the Just Folks you just wonder who got the job to make the Just Folks posters, and what a cool job that would be, even as it's just a hideous idea. Right. I love the logo of the OAA that's mm -hmm. on the pamphlet. I mean, that yep. is just perfect. Yep. It's exactly what it would have looked like. Yep. That's the kind More of thing details. that impresses me. Forget forget yep. story and character development. <laughs> I'm there for that. We talked about details in the last episode a little bit and how impressive they were with the. The vote, all the voting procedures and mechanisms, and there was another one that, that I forgot to mention, which was when uh, when when Herman goes to, I believe it was a bakery. The, the 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 man who serves him has this amazing contraption with string to wrap the box, which I'd never seen one of those before. Oh yeah, I remember seeing those. Really, in real life, like in in a, in a shop. Sure. Oh, that's right. That's the thing. You grew up in that world. Sort of. I grew up in the, the bakery world. Yeah, we didn't have those in Kansas City. There's a bakery on every corner in New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of New Jersey, I, I love when he 
slips the garrote around the dummy's head and says, yeah. motherfucker, I'm from Jersey. <laughs> now, I just want to say, I know a lot of people from New Jersey. and I'd say maybe maybe one in five of us have killed someone. All right. Well, our hands. That's <laughs> it's other, not that much. That's the other issue I had with, 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 with the, the, the army sequence, the training stuff. <clears throat> they made it seem like this kid from Jersey is, knows how to kill people. Uh, he's tough. He's world weary. Blah blah blah. Meanwhile, the English soldiers are, uh, well, they're they're English, and but what people don't really realize about the English is that, from what I've read anyway, the World War II soldier, the English soldier, was no more refined than the U.S. soldier. It's not like they didn't have a working class and coal miners and all those sorts of people in in England at the same time, but. We sort of given them this, this, uh, this air of urbanity or refinement that they probably wouldn't have had. Am one I wrong about was, that? I mean, they one thing that always strikes me about about Tommies is that they're always smiling in every picture, and mm-hmm. I I think they were told to do that. <laughs> like when the cameraman comes around, right? Give us a grin. Stiff upper lip. Show us those rotting teeth. Yes. The Office of American Absorption. Such a great name. <laughs> and that, well, we, I, I want to talk about that later when we get toward the end, uh, because there's something else that I didn't quite... Well, I, I want to ask you a question. Yep. Do, do you think the program makes sense? The program to, to send Jewish children out into the hinterlands to, to work farms and, and live with regular families. Does, does that make sense strategically? For whom? For the government. So, uh, so I don't know, and I, I wonder if Roth, if, if there was more exposition in the book where we 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 hear characters, whether it's the rabbi or someone else, explaining it. What I'm guessing is that the point of that is, or the the underlying motivation is to essentially un-Jewish as many children as possible for future assimilation. And this is the this is the most palatable way that they can do it. They can't just put everybody throw everybody in concentration camps on day one. So this is step one. And maybe if step one works, we won't, there won't need to be a step two, ten years, fifteen years down the road. I assume that's sort of a point. Is it does it is it is it would it actually work? I doubt it, and actually, we—that's sort of what Herman winds up thinking, is my guess. But that's toward the at the end, very end of the episode, so maybe we should hold off, wait to talk about that until then. The actual mechanics of this thing, and Herman's motivation. Yeah, I, I want to say that uh, Morgan Spector's outstanding in this episode. Yes. I mean, he just he just drives the truck forward. Yeah, he has a lot of different things he has to he, he's supposed to accomplish as an actor, and does all of them. Right, and that uh, we should probably get to the, the trip to Washington. The family's been wait, saving wait, up wait for... you're skipping way ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry, man. Whoa, whoa, back off. I have uh, hold on a second here. I have two pages of two and a half pages of notes, and no, two pages of notes on this episode. You're toward the end of the second page. I'm still in the middle of the first page. 
Well, you should have shared your notes with me beforehand. So I, that... I could have done that. You're right. I could have shared with you an outline of the episode. I'm not sure if that would work better. I want it to be more free-flowing. Just Rob and Jim shooting the bull. <laughs> it's a bull session. We're in college. Yet, yet when I flow to the end of the episode, yep. you just jump me. I did. Well, it's true. I don't want to go all the way to the end yet. Um, I just want to... As they talked about this on the, the, the Plot Against America podcast, I don't want to talk about it a lot but i also i they said it was the linchpin of the episode basically and i would agree when alvin explains what it means to be a jew that's such a great scene so incredibly well written by simon i, I could read i could read that in the rabbi's voice here i'll do that this is my favorite line but this is not the rabbi didn't say this in the episode alvin says it but this is the rabbi i'm a jew because i was born a jew and this whole family, ah, oh, this whole, oh, no, he's, then he says F-bomb. I can't say that because it's supposed to be a family podcast. This whole damn world wishes it wasn't. I said it wrong. I wish it, okay, I got it all wrong. I can't read my notes. I apologize. Anyway, great scene. You've already seen it. Everybody listening should already have watched it. So uh, strike that, strike that uh, segment. Go ahead, Jim. I like Go what up. the father says about, uh, about the rabbi. I think that man would sell every last Israelite back to the pharaohs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so I have something in my note. Oh, I know what it was. I don't know how to ride a bicycle. That was a great line. Um, <laughs> uh, that was actually the rabbi. Um, all right, page two of notes. Uh, we... So the weird thing about the, the mission that Alvin gets sent on, which is totally uh, <clears throat> a departure from the book, they're off to do some scouting mission or, or seize some te German technology based on pulsed navigation. And I'm sitting there thinking, what, what's the point of all this? Why, why can't he just be in the desert in North Africa or something? But having listened to Simon talk about it, I guess this pulsed navigation thing comes back and I'm Assuming it has something to do with Lindbergh's disappearance, but I don't know. Yeah, he's a uh, police commando. I, I don't know that the commandos were that active in North America, North Africa. It would have been much more fun to have him go there. Um, they they right. did most of also, their work. Also, would he have been training long enough to become a commando? That's another thing that I wonder about. Well, yes. In, in the book, he is home by the time... He goes on the. He, he comes home in the in a chapter headed Jan, January February nineteen forty one, so he hasn't even gone on his huh. mission yet. Got it. In, in in this timeline, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry to keep comparing it. I don't want to compare it to the book too much. You know they're on they're on a different constraint. So I, I get that. Well, I think I think it's interesting. I think discussing the choices that Simon made that where where he departs, I think those are interesting choices that he made uh, yeah. and worth discussing. So feel free. Uh, two two real people that are mentioned around that time in the show are Henry Ford, who is the Secretary of the Interior, uh, and Burton K. Wheeler, who is Vice President. And those are those are choices from the book. Uh, mm -hmm. Roth Roth picked them. Brilliant choice for Burton K. Wheeler. He was a Democrat, but he was an isolationist. And he was opposed to movies showing Nazis in a bad light. 
because he thought this was propaganda coming out of Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, a lot of directors in Hollywood had escaped from Nazi Germany. So he said, why are all these foreign men you know, telling us what to think? And the person who defended them, and here's the irony, was Wendell Wilkie. Right. Who was the Republican. So it was kind of, yeah. kind of the opposite world there. Uh, and, the, and, and Henry Ford is the Secretary of the Interior. You know, by 1942, Henry Ford had, was beginning to lose it. And right. uh, when his son Edsel died, he, 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 took back, he took over the company and started driving into the ground. So even though they were doing all this work for the war, apparently they were in bad shape by 1945. So, the, you know, the government was always pushing the other family members, you know, get the company away from him. But, you know, he was, he was a professional anti-Semite. Yeah. He, he was Hitler's inspiration. Yeah. Um, I didn't know this since I've never read it, but he's, he's mentioned in Mein Kampf several times in glowing terms. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, so I wonder, would Secretary of the Interior have been the right position for, for someone like Ford, even if he hadn't been addled? Um, well, it, it's good for the book because I would imagine the Secretary of the Interior would be the person who's working on the OAA. I think yeah. I think that would come under his umbrella, wouldn't you? Right. I, I think that makes sense. I mean, I, I don't. The cabinet departments were quite a bit different uh, then than they are now. I don't really have a great grasp for what they were in 1941, but that sounds right. So off to Washington. You want to skip to Washington? Uh, I just love that line when, when Zoe Kazan, prior to the, the trip, says, this is not the time to buy, Herman. She just oh, seems yeah. to have such a better grasp of everything that's happening than he does. I mean, she's already been to the Canadian consulate in New York. Right. Which, which is an important scene. I mean, she's already laying the groundwork for them to skedaddle to Canada when, when things get really bad. Right. And like his boyhood friend. Leave. Yeah. Yes. Like his boyhood just, friend who runs the, the newsreel theater. Right. And at one point he says, Canada. This is Canada before it's too late, Herman. Um, right. So he's, the, he's basically the lone holdout among the adults in this group. Because he... He, he believes the dream. Yeah. He, he still... Does, he just can't quite wrap his head around. How is this happening? This shouldn't be happening. Look, here's Lincoln. You know. This is the land of Lincoln. How is this happening in the land of Lincoln? And I totally get and, that. I mean, right. I think, I think, I think what we're going through right now. I think a lot of us are saying, "What do you mean? I just can't saunter down to the grocery store and get one item, and then go back tomorrow right. and get something else that I forgot? Why? Why can't I do that?" <laughs> right. Well, I mean, speaking of the land of Lincoln, there's obviously a powerful moment for me. Maybe the most powerful because. I'm a sucker for, for sentimental things. Just, you know, I, I'll cry at the drop of a hat if there's a, a baby or a dog in a movie. And I'm sort of the same way when it comes to the Lincoln Memorial. And I'm sure it's been used in any number of movies. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a scene with Jimmy Stewart and Mr. Smith, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. And, I, you know, I, of course, I've been there a couple of times. And it, whether I'm, it's in person or it's in a movie, shot well, um, it never fails. Uh, so that scene was just incredible when they go to Lincoln Memorial. 
It's funny. Of course, Herman, not Herman's best, greatest moment, by the way, that whole scene. No, but he's, he's kind of breaking down a little bit. Yeah. I mean, the indignities are piling up and (laughs) he's, uh, although that's, that's the first indignity. Now that I think about it in sequence, he, he's called a loudmouth Jew. Right. Then they're kicked out of their hotel and then the gigantic bully accosts him in the restaurant. Yes. Uh, so it's that sequence, but I think the restaurant sequence in, in that he's Mr. Taylor and the, the restaurant staff stand up for him. Right. And and Simon talks about this. He goes, "Look, the, the whole the whole country hasn't turned yet. There's still good people." Right. right. So it got me to thinking about the first Mad Max movie, where you know there's still a semblance of sanity and. You know, things are still working a little bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so how how far are we removed from the first Mad Mad Max movie at that point? <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's why uh, people love to predict people who make movies because it's because it sells. But also, actual people love to predict that if things just start to go a little south in this country, everything will get out of hand in a hurry. And that's why you got to stockpile food and that's why you got to have the guns but there really aren't that many people that who are crazy enough that are that, that they're just going to flip um all of a sudden i think it would be a long drawn-out process you know absent nuclear weapons nu- nuclear war or something but just things that can 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 get worse and worse and worse for a long time before everything turns i think Sounds sounds like you're kind of wishing there, Rob. Wishing that it turns, or wishing that it doesn't. It doesn't. Sounds like you're, I, uh, you're I trying to convince yourself. Yes, <laughs> that's part of it. Yep. I mean, I've been around. I've been alive for a long time, uh, and never really had to worry about it turning before. Uh, sure, I had my childhood fears of nuclear war, like like a lot of us did, uh, but it wasn't a daily fear. Uh, it was, oh, that, that, that movie's kind of scary. It wasn't something I thought about all the time. Um, so, yes, you're right. I, I, there's a part of me that's just assuming that we shall return to normalcy and I can get back my life back to exactly the way I always thought it would be. So, um, the, but, but, the, hotel, but the news I wanted, is tightening. Oh, go ahead. Go, I just want to talk about the hotel scene for, uh, for a minute. Um, it wasn't clear to me. Obviously, they were kicked out of the hotel because they were Jewish, but uh, and there were hotels that simply did not allow Jews. Uh, I believe well into the forties, uh, maybe beyond that. I don't know. But what I couldn't quite figure out was why they were allowed into the hotel in the first place because they have a pretty obviously Jewish name. Um, wh- where was that decision made? Did someone? Did some Gentile family just show up and say, we need a room? And they said, oh, there's a Jewish family. We'll kick them out. They, I was couldn't figure that part out. I would imagine that not everyone knows what a Jewish name is. And maybe whoever booked the room didn't realize. But when they arrived there and, you know, the manager got a good look at them mm-hmm. and heard them talk and put two and two together, said, oh, well, they got to go. 
Well, that's another problem that I have with things like that because I literally can never tell when somebody's Jewish. I mean, it's 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 gotten it's been ridiculous a few times in my life. Um, so it would never even occur to me when that family walks in, and, and of course Zoe Kazan is not Jewish. Um, uh, I believe the actor who plays Herman is, but uh, to me, I, I I guess there are people who are just more attuned to it than I than I've ever been. But it seems like it'd be a really easy thing to screw up. Well, I think if you were Jewish if you were an anti-Semite, right. You'd probably have some sort of <clears throat> radar going. <laughs> I thought you were going to say something else. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought so too, and I thought better of it. And <laughs> you would you would be more attuned to it and say, you know, oh, who can I hate today? I think people who hate a lot. You think they wake up and say, boy, I sure hope I run into some people I can really hate on today. <laughs> I hate to get through the day surrounded by just people that look like me, because then I can't fire up the the hate furnace. So, the, we, so at the end of the episode, there's a scene in the restaurant, in the cafe, which is fantastic. I love the song. Um, uh, Simon had a great line about that. Again, I don't want to belabor the, that podcast so much, but uh, as he says, it's such an Americanism on the banks of the Wabash. And that just gets back to what we talked about multiple times, which is these are just Americans right. uh, living the same lives as, as all the rest of the Americans, at least the white Americans um, and yet they can't be accepted for that but so the cafe scene is pivotal in a way that I didn't realize uh, I had to listen to the podcast to, to, to understand why Herman suddenly in what seems like suddenly decides to let his son head off to Kentucky or wherever the hell it is and unfortunately it seems like that when we we, we see a preview of the next episode it doesn't seem that <laughs> it doesn't seem to have worked out the way Herman hoped it would <laughs> well then we wouldn't have what, drama what did you think right but what did you think did, 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 did Herman's did, did Herman's um, did Herman's sea change make sense to you in the context of the episode and his character yes uh, I think Herman is, is feeling all of this more than anyone else. I think this is consuming him. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the tension between Herman and uh, his wife is just incredible. Right. You know, her vacation is ruined. <laughs> yep. And, she says, uh, Herman, I can't go on like this. And yes. it's pitch perfect. Yes. There's another great line delivered by a guy with one line. Um, the, the cop, he said, I think you ought to listen to your wife. <laughs> Pregnant pause. Levin. Oh, my God. Yep. You know, we, we touched on earlier how acting has improved overall. Right. You know, 60 years ago, they would have lived, given that to a day actor. Yep. And he, he would have butchered it. But now they get some guy and he just nails it with one line. Yep. Levin. Oh my God. Uh, do you, uh, I, I've started to feel guilty about not having read the book in the last three years. I keep asking you is, is how much of this um, tracks with the book in terms of the trip to Washington and then Herman changing his mind? 
It tracks pretty well. I want to compare the the trip to Washington to another very intense scene in another book, uh, A Man in Full by Tom Wolfe, which has this sequence where the lead character gets his car towed and it basically ruins his life. The tension in that scene, in reading a book, you don't really get too tense reading a book, but I wanted it to be over when I was reading a book, which doesn't happen very often. And Mm -hmm. this trip to Washington is like that. Like, what other indignities are these poor people going to experience on a simple family vacation? Mm -hmm. You know, a a family vacation that that my family and I took when I was about Philip's age. Um, So, you know, I I thought that was really good, the way they built the tension and... um, and the way Mr. Taylor diffused it. Right. They cast him and he acted very differently than I thought he would, but it, it, it turned out to be great. It's good that I didn't have any hand in that because <laughs> I would have had him as sort of an officious little man with with little glasses and you know spouting facts about Washington everywhere, almost like comic relief. Yeah, well, Car- and, uh, exactly. He would, he would be the comic foil in a, in a, in a 1940s movie. Right. He, Were you aware that, by... <laughs> that the Washington Monument, if, if the Washington Monument were made of toothpicks, it would clean everyone's tooth in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but he's, he's very good. He's very subtle. And he keeps quiet until the exact right moment. Yep. Yeah, I had no idea. I thought he might be some sort of uh, informer or... Uh, who knew what? He I mean, seemed like such a potentially uh, shady character, and he turned out to be exactly the opposite of that, which was a lovely right. surprise <laughs> as I'm watching the show. You know, we've all been we've all gone to the big city and been approached up on the street that someone wants to show us around or take our money for something or sell us something, yep. and that's yep. just what he does. He right. accosts them on the street <laughs> and pitches them. Yeah. Um, no, he was great. You're right. Um, and um, and surprising, and really plays a well. We'll we'll find out how how key his role is because he clearly symbolizes a better America, and we don't really know yet if if that's the America that 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 winds up winning this story, or if uh, the, the the big lummox in the cafe is the one who wins this story. I mean, I suppose if we read the book, we had an idea, but, but uh, I'm sort of approaching, because I know the ending is different. I'm sort of approaching. Right, they, a they might story. depart. It might so. depart. It might, it might, who knows? Um, I think we, honestly, I, as intelligent as David Simon is, he's also an idealist. And I have to think that we're, he's going to wind up giving us some reason to hope for good things. But, we don't know. Concluding thoughts, Jim? Uh, it just it just keeps getting better. It does keep getting better. I have to say, that, uh, you know, one thing we didn't mention was the, the tremendous last scene in the hospital, which was just utterly perfect. Not a word was spoken. It was, <laughs> it was a little piece of art that lasted 45 seconds. <laughs> don't you think 
Yeah, it, it reminded me of a lot of dates that I was on. The Ooh, only maybe, and, and <laughs> you know, pretty much decide right there. Okay, I'm I'll get a meal out of this guy. You, you know and, what's funny uh, though? It's, it's maybe enough first... that I could get a do- get, get a doggy bag, get two meals out of him, <laughs> and never it's see him first, again. It's the first time that I've wished that I hadn't read the book. You know why? No. Well, we 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 the. I'm hoping that everybody's seen it, seen this. Um, otherwise, this is a huge spoiler. But we get to the last scene in the episode. We're in a hospital. Uh, we see Alvin's face. We could guess the mission didn't go so well, at least not for him. And then the camera starts panning down the length of his body. And you and I, because we've read the book, we know what we're going to see. We're going to see that he's missing half of his leg. But if you've never seen it before, that's got to be quite. If you've never, if you haven't read the book, that must be pretty jarring and certainly more dramatic. Right, because they, they, they weren't building up to that. Correct. You have no idea and because because there wasn't and because a we didn't see the mission. Right. We have no idea what happened. Right. We didn't know he was hurt. We didn't know what would happen. Um, nothing. And then we see that he has lost half of his leg, and then we find that that his his. Uh, his lover is in the hospital to visit, and again, nothing spoken. He's asleep, and she gets up and leaves. And I think we're supposed to assume that she arrived while he was asleep, and that she will never return. Absolutely. Would you agree? She's done, yeah. like all those women that at first, at, took the meals I bought them and never, <laughs> never returned my calls. <laughs> All right, anything else on this one? <laughs> no. All right, this fi- I'm going to read the outro. Jim wrote the intro, which I love, and he also wrote the outro, which I'm going to read. Maybe next week we'll switch. Uh, again, we're trying to be professional here. Unfortunately, I don't have any reading glasses, so it's going to be tricky, but here we go. This concludes episode four of The Pod Against America, which, by the way, is now available on iTunes podcasts. Our music is Johnny Dresden's Teutonic-tinged version of Telstar, the Joe Meek-penned hit of 1962. Join us, Rob Nyer, and the great Jim Baker, next week for episode five. I added a couple little touches in there. Thanks, buddy. Yeah, I did not write the great Jim Baker. (laughs) Come on. All right, we're going to listen to a lot of uh, Fountains of Wayne this week, and... uh, We'll talk next week after episode four of The Plot Against America.